listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsuit, and today it's the evening of Friday, the 5th of November in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom by Hannah Song, who is Director of International Cooperation for NKDB. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and you might wonder why I always bother you about this, and it's so that people can discover our podcast more easily. No reviews means that the all-powerful algorithm pushes us down the internet podcast rabbit hole into the abyss of ignorance, and no new people will ever listen to us. So please do leave a review, and while you're at it, please share this podcast episode with everyone you know and three people you don't. I'd like to reach 1% of Joe Rogan's audience by the year's end. I know that I initially said 10%, but I'm setting my sights a little bit more realistically now. Secondly, don't forget to check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Thirdly, have you looked at the 2022 NK News wall calendar? There are 14 beautiful photographs taken in North Korea by non-North Korean photographers. There are only 850 of these limited edition calendars available for purchase, so stocks will run out. It's a great gift idea for Christmas, which is just around the corner, and you can get your hands on that calendar and also posters and a leadership wall chart at nknews.org shop, or you can search for nknews wall calendar at amazon.com. Finally, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to us at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, my guest today, Hannah Song, has been at the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights, or NKDB, for over six years now, initially as a researcher and for the last 11 months as Director of internal, sorry, International Communication. She has a bachelor's degree from University College Utrecht in the Netherlands and is working on a master's in international human rights law from the University of Oxford, even as we speak. Thank you for coming on the show, Hannah. Thank you, Jacko. Very excited to be here. Now, you are Hannah Song with only one H. There's also a Hannah Song with two H's who works right. for Link or Liberty in North Korea. Do people often get confused about which Hannah Song is which? So often, um, I don't know which one of us prefers being called the other Hannah Song, oh. um, but yeah, we have started to joke about it now. Um, I think I probably get more bothered more than she does. People often confuse me to be the OG with two H's, Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I say that I'm the British version of the American Hannah Song. Right. And of course, thanks to autocomplete, if you're typing in an email address, uh, whichever one uh, you're sending an email to most often will be the first one that'll pop up in your email folder there. So people have to be very careful to write to the, the right Hannah song, uh, not the other one, especially if they're complaining about the other one. That could be a bit awkward. <laughs> Luckily, none of us, well, I hope she hasn't received any complaints about me, but I've only ever heard good things um, about the other Hannah songs, even through emails. So... I'm hoping she can see the same thing. Uh, okay, so uh, way back in December 2018, almost three years ago, on episode 51, I interviewed your former colleague, Teodora, or Teddy Gyubchanova, who has since moved on from NKDB to something in Europe, uh, and you took over her position. So give us a quick overview of the last year or so since you took the job. What's new at NKDB? Um, so for those who are not familiar with our work, as our full name um, 
correctly, I guess, identifies is we largely operate on a database. So uh, the NKDB is an acronym for the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights. Mm -hmm. And so we manage the largest repository on North Korean human rights violations um, that could be violations that occurred in North Korea to North Korean nationals or also foreigners, um, such as a very well-known like Otto Wombia case, yes. as well as uh, cases that have happened to North Koreans living overseas. Um, you've, I'm sure you've covered on your podcast as well, Jacko, there are lots of overseas laborers or mm-hmm. women in China. We, so we cover anything related to uh, the human rights of North Koreans either as perpetrators or as victims. So we at the moment have about 80,000 cases. And just as of Monday, actually, we just surpassed having um, over 50,000 entries on uh, individuals related to those human rights violations. So that includes victims, witnesses, um, information providers, as well as perpetrators. Now, a large source of our data comes from talking to North Korean defectors, because as you and your listeners very well know, we don't have access and no human rights organization, or not even the UN, has access to doing data collection and investigations on human rights violations in North Korea. So the only way we can gather that data is through interviewing uh, North Koreans who have left the country and are now resettled in South Korea. Mm-hmm. and. We used to have access to these North Koreans by what you call Hanawon. So that's the settlement support center. Unfortunately, over the past year or so since lovely Teddy left, we have come, we faced quite a few difficulties with that access. So we used to have quite a good working relationship with the Ministry of of Unification who manages the Hanawon Center Um, and so we would have uh, we would be able to interview these North Koreans but due to changing policies related to North Korean human rights as well as the decrease in number of North Koreans coming into South Korea we despite having been the first entity to ever go into Hanawon and collect data uh, we were the first entity to also no longer be given access to to Hanawon. Right. So that's been very difficult for us. Uh, mm-hmm. But despite that, we have, you know, we, we're still, you know, marching on and doing our research with North Korean yeah. defectors. And, you know, we do resettlement assistance support. We have these education programs and do advocacy efforts. But yeah, so the major activity that we do at NKDB was uh, severely impacted. Mm. So we're just looking forward to maybe hopefully seeing some changes in policies over the next few years. So is, is that uh, something that's affected by political factors? Yes, I do want to point out that we are a non-political organization um, and we have had a good working relationship with every single administration that has been in office. We How actually long start- has your organization been in existence? So we, as an organization, was established in 2003, but the founders of our organization started yeah. having access to Hanawon when it was first established in 1997. Oh, yeah. And so the founders were just able to continue doing the work that they as individuals did as an organization, really. Yeah. And so, you know, we were there during the Sunshine Policies. Uh, we've been there when 
South Korea didn't have the best relationship with North Korea, but this is the first time that we haven't been given access to mm -hmm. Hanawon and we've been so um, affected by domestic policies and inter-Korean relations. Right. So that could change under the next president, perhaps. Perhaps. We, I think what the past year has shown us is that just generally the perception and interest in North Korean human rights on either side of the party is not as high or strong as we had hoped. Mm. Um, and just the understanding of how important documenting human rights is and also understanding what the role of NGOs are. Right. Not quite clear yet in South Korea. Um. And so, you know, we can hope that the next election presidential elections will change something but mm -hmm. we also don't know because one of the large one of the biggest reasons why we no longer had access to Hanawon was because after the North Korean Human Rights Act was enacted in 2016 um, a new center under the Ministry of Unification Fukan um, Kirok Center the center for North Korean Human Rights Records um, mm -hmm. you might have to double check their English name for that they were established at uh, basically do what we as a NGO had already done for the past 20 years or so to collect data on North Korean human rights violations right. and maintain a database. Uh -huh. And do you have any liaison with that government agency? We, so they now are the, I guess, control tower for who has access to Hanawon. Yes. Considering the fact that they no longer, they are not giving us this access, um, I think. I don't need to go into any further details of what our relationship might be. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we do we do definitely understand the importance of government collecting data. Our, our organization was also benchmarked off the G East and West German government archives. Mm. And so the Salzgitter archives, that's how, that's where the idea for a database for North Korean human rights came from. Ah. And so... We're not saying that the government agency should not be collecting data, but we're also very well aware that depending on what administration is in office, that the perception of human rights and the importance of collecting data does change. And mm. we, we think it's very important to keep, obviously, data collection to be very consistent. And, yeah. uh, you know, we don't want there to be a time in the future Korean Peninsula, where whether that's through unification, whether that's we don't, I mean, we don't know what the future of North Korea is going to look like. But when a time comes where we can talk to the North Koreans and they will won't ask us questions of like why is there such a gap in years of what was going on? Because yeah. it's not that like the human rights violations were stopping in North Korea, but it's that the South Korean government lost interest. Right. Now earlier this week, you released your. 60th monthly briefing and had a discussion on North Korean human rights uh, titled North Korea's changing labor policies and the effect on marital relations. And uh, you were kind enough to send me a, a summary of your research report, uh, which I had a look at last night uh, in English. It's gripping stuff. I'm going to read a little paragraph from the introduction here. This research analyzed the changes in the gender roles of North Korean families and the perception of married couples due to North Korea's adherence to socialist labor policies. In particular, the research focused on the issue of marital conflict due to the restructuring of gender roles and the change in perceptions. 
The core purpose of this research is to investigate how the state's labor policy conflicts, how the state's labor policy conflicts with the market order causes distortions in the gender roles of North Korean couples and how this has affected the dynamics of marital relations. So I guess, first of all, I should ask, what actually is North Korea's labor policy? When it comes to, I guess, any socialist country, that every individual, every uh, member of that society is expected to contribute to the society and be a laborer to and contribute to the larger central economy. And so in North Korea, it's mainly the men. So the labor policies is the labor policies are very focused on how men should be breadwinners of the households and they should hold the economic power. So all men are registered to some form of state-owned enterprise, factory, institution, mm. the list goes on. Yeah. And then the wives are, you know, women, there are of course some women who do have official occupations but generally what happens is that when women get married they will then be registered as a dependent on the husband so they don't their work their job is considered to be the dependent wife the house the housewife right and so the men are still expected to you know report to their jobs their workplaces every day uh, but as we all know um, since the arduous march since the late 1990s many North Korean factories are no longer really in operation. So the centrally, the central economic system has collapsed. But despite that, North Korea still uh, forces their men to go to work. So there are some men who, if they have enough money, they will be able to register themselves as what you, what they call in North Korea, Parsam, so at 8-3. And so if they, they can... Uh, pay some a monthly a monthly allowance to so instead of receiving wages they actually pay the workplace where they're registered to to say that oh yes this person has been coming mm. to work while they're free to also participate in market activities or you know let their let their wife go to work on the market activities um whatever form to just be a bit more free and not tied down to right. what the government expects of them. Now, my, um, that, that's, uh, I think, something people may have heard before on the podcast or if, if they've read uh, anything on, on the history of North Korea during and after the famine of the 1990s. They'll be familiar with your story that it was uh, the women who went into the marketplaces and who began to earn the money uh, while the men, uh, if they didn't have the ability or the 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 financial wherewithal to uh, bribe somebody to get out of work, the men would continue showing up to these uh, defunct workplaces. And, and that really changed uh, economic uh, power structures in North Korea. But you say that here we are 20, 25 years on from the arduous march, from that famine, uh, and actually the situation is still more or less the same. Is that right? Exactly. Hmm. Um, I mean, of course, there are some North Korean men who have found loopholes in the system, such as the 8-3 measure that I mentioned. But generally, if there are also punishments in place for those who do not report to those workplaces, Mm. um, commonly they'll go to labor training camps for to make up for all the days that they missed. Um, So the North, so I think this is where this will come up 
again and again in the research where yeah. um, North Korea's policies are not changing in time with the changing society and what the people want from the government. Now, I'm curious about something. This policy that it's the men who go out to work, the sort of uh, you know, North Korea's labor policy, that it, it's a male uh, structured uh, economic system. Um, my understanding is that North Korea, as early as the late 1940s, uh, in its constitution, gave notional equality to men and women. So I, I'm wondering what authority is cited when men are, you know, are given this kind of economic power over women? Is it, do people fall back on tradition or was it something that Kim Il-sung said? Or is it, you know, do they call upon Confucianism? I mean, obviously they can't call upon the law because the law says men and women are equal. So what's actually, you know, uh, what is cited as the authority for this? Right, um, exactly. They did uh, enact, uh, what, that was one of the first acts that they, the laws that they yeah. enacted. Um, to then act on the equal rights of men and women, and women were said to have economic and social political rights. They also had to contribute to society. I do think if you would ask a North, a North Korean government official, where is this coming from? They would say, well, women are also working. They're also contributing to the socialist society. As uh -huh. In fact, they, their jobs as housewives, as child rearers as looking after the family that's just as important and then they would refer to you know Kim Il-sung's wife uh, Kim Jong-suk who is known to be like the ideal woman in North Korea because she was so successful at supporting her husband's re revolution having um, bringing up her children and that's so I don't if you were to ask the North Korean government I think that would be their response um, but you know whenever we do the, the human, whenever we do human rights work, we can always see discrepancies between what the North Korean government states and what is actually implemented on the mm. ground. And I think that's just an unfortunate trend we see over and over again. Now, in this, this research report, what's the, or rather in the research itself, what was the methodology? How was the data gathered? Right. So this uh, research was actually carried out last year in 2020 during the height of COVID. So mm. it was a bit, uh, it was a bit tricky. But so over the course of four months, we used a quota sampling method, which meant we were very specific about the participants that we would recruit. So we ended up recruiting 60 North Korean defectors specifically from the city of Hesan, in, which is right near the Chinese border in Yangang province. Right. I recently interviewed Yonmi Park, who came from Hesan back in 2007. Right. And I think a lot of what Yonmi had spoken about in the past and on the podcast and also in her books, those were one of the reasons, like those trends that we were seeing in Hesan and the larger, you know, she was talking about, I I listened to your podcast yesterday. Ah. And so, um, you know, she kept talking about, oh, and this lady that I knew in Hesan and my cousin and all these people, we started to notice the large number of people coming from Hesan to South Korea specifically, and the different North Korean society that they refer to compared to some of our other interviews, interviewees from different regions. Mm. And we were very purposive on why we chose Hesan in particular. Um, we're very well aware of the fact that there are some people who critique research done on North Korea generally and North Korean human rights saying that it lacks representation. And so we didn't try to attempt 
to represent the entire North Korean uh, North Korean society, but we yeah. did say this is a representation of what we have seen in Hesan. Mm -hmm. And so we interviewed 30 females and 30 males. All of them had defected between 2017 and 2019. So had left the country, not entered South Korea, but left North Korea in 2017 to 2019. Mm. So 10 years after Yeonmi left, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they were between the ages of 30 to 59. So we had 10 people in their 30s, 10 people in their 40s, 10 people in their 50s for each gender. Mm -hmm. And were the, uh, were the interviewees paid any money? They were paid a small honorarium for the time that they took out of um, their jobs. And so most of the interviews took about two hours. Mm -hmm. So we would calculate what like the average if they had jobs, and most of them did have jobs, what they had to miss um, right. to, to be in the interview. How does paying somebody money for an interview, how does that affect the reliability of, of the accounts, if at all? Um, it For us, it's more of the difficulty that we face in recruiting participants mm -hmm. that we have found more and more over the years. We, of course, when we first started as an organization, we did not pay our interviewees and I that would be the ideal situation we would mm. also not want to pay our interviewees and as a human rights organization we're very aware of how it, and as a research organization we're also very well aware of um the the problems surrounding paying your your respondents yeah what we have unfortunately found is that a lot because of the little information that people who research on North Korea have access to, everybody it starts to swarm around the same source, which are North Korean defectors. And yeah. so there'll be these big, big universities, these big, huge think tanks, huge government organizations, even some you know broadcasting networks yeah. who will pay North Koreans a lot, a lot of money that we we as an NGO just cannot compete mm. with. And we would we wouldn't want to pay them that much anyway, because that is not um that is that is not why we're we're doing the interview we're not we don't want them to think oh this is an easy way for me to make an x amount of money if i right. go there for two hours and what does that do to uh to incentives right i mean if you introduce exactly. uh, large amounts of money into the equation and uh, obviously not at nkdb but at uh, perhaps less uh, scholarly or less rigorous organizations uh that can skew the incentives towards telling a story that is, you know, perhaps a bit more uh, exaggerated than the reality. Right. And unfortunately, we've also hid it from very scholarly organizations, from very scholarly institutions in the US and Japan, mm. even North Korea. And I think what makes it harder is because some of these interviews that there'll be all these research uh, projects that they'll be participating um, in overseas are less intensive than ours so mm -hmm. it will be you know pinpointing things on a map or talking about trees or water in north korea which mm -hmm. doesn't really affect them as individuals but of course you know we're a human rights organization and we we are asking them about perhaps the most difficult periods of their life yeah. and so if they're getting paid you know five times the amount of money for a shorter period of time to just you know point some things out on google maps mm. versus when we ask them to come in for two hours and talk about uh well, domestic you, violence for example right it's very 
difficult to recruit participants. We found more and more, right. and I do, that's not just something that NKDB experiences, but I'm sure that my colleagues and other organizations have been seeing this very unfortunate trend. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just because there is it's become a market out there. Is there any way to counteract that? For us, we have found that when our interviewees understand the importance or the significance of mm -hmm. the work that not just NKDB, but other NGOs are doing. Yeah. And when they see that the work that we are doing are not just for our, our own good, and it's not so that we can, you know, get a salary and that we have a job, but it is for the, that we are doing this for the advancement of their human rights and their family's human rights and for that whatever they experience doesn't have to be experienced by future generations. Mm -hmm. We found that they are more cooperative and they will help us. They will help introduce other um, North Korean defectors. And so we do at NKD, we have quite a, we do have a great network, mm -hmm. but it does come from education. And of course, there is that lack of awareness of what human rights is in North Korea in the way that we see it outside of North Korea. Yeah. And so it takes some time for the for people that really understand why we're having this conversation in the first place. Yeah. But once they do have that understanding, they're the best partners and they are very, very, very helpful in the research that we do. Okay. Now there are a lot of uh, uh, themes from the results of your uh, of your report. We can't go into all of them in, in too much detail, so I have to be a little bit uh, selective here. But uh, let's sort of touch on some of the points there. Um, first of all, do you still see uh, a preference towards uh, sons uh, when when children are born in uh, in the family in, in North Korea? It was interesting because we asked our participants when you were having your child. Mm -hmm. um, what preference did your parents have? That was the first question we asked. That was the first question we included in. Um, so just a, another point about our methodology was we had a survey which had the same questions for all 60 participants and then uh, two hour in-depth interviews, which allowed us to elaborate on the questions that we had mm. included in our survey. Um, and so the question in the survey was, you know, did your parents have a preference in regards to the gender of your children and between across all genders, across all age groups, overwhelmingly, sons were still preferred. Mm. But then it was interesting when we asked, okay, but did you want to have a son and a daughter when you were giving birth? And among the women, a lot more women said that they had actually wanted to have a daughter mm. because they could see that men were not... They, men could no longer really had a role in society. Right. And another uh, commonly said um, statement was that when, you know, I'm gray and old, my, my son is not going to look after me. My son mm. is, I cannot depend on my son. I cannot depend on the government, the state. Right. I can only depend on my daughter. So I need to have a daughter who will have a good mother-in-law who will let, let her come and look after me in my, in my old age. Is uh, gender-based uh, abortion a thing in North Korea? We did hear some statements saying that after getting an ultrasound, some people will have an abortion if the baby is not a son. Mm. We cannot, you know, generalize that and say 
that all people, all women are having abortions because of course they are. There is a, it's not like in Northeast China where there is a huge gender difference balance. Mm. But we, I mean, we did hear like anecdotes of some people saying that, oh, you would have an abortion. Um, but I don't know if that is what is still happening in recent days. I do mm. think that is something that happened a few years before. Right, because we're talking obviously about a, a very specific time. Remind us again, what's the the time bracket when all these uh, 60 people left North Korea? So all of our defectors um, left the country between 2017 and 2019. So still quite recent, mm-hmm. but they're not you know, only being asked to talk about their last two years in North Korea they're talking about right. their entire yeah. you know married life and especially for those in their 50s in yep. their late 50s they'd already be married for almost 30 years yeah okay let's talk about spouse selection how do men and women find their life partners in North Korea is it still a the uh, matchmaking process uh, as it was traditionally in in pre you know in a pre-modern Korea or is it uh, free choice it's a mixture. We found that uh, 45% of our respondents had arranged marriages. It was, it was a matchmaking service. And 55%, you know, dated and then had what is called a love marriage. Yeah. So about, about half. But what is interesting is that among the males, the, the ones who could choose their partner, the ones who had a love marriage, accounted for 70%. Mm. compared to 40% of the female respondents. Mm. So with that, we we analyze that as that women are more subordinate to the influence of their parents and they're more likely to enter a marriage um, through, the, through pressures that they feel from society. Right. Uh, what are some factors that enter into uh, a, a woman making a choice or a woman's family making a choice for her uh, about who is an ideal husband? So in the past, they would mention, they said they would look into um, whether that person was a party member. They would look in the, to their mm. family background, the songbun yeah. Um But nowadays, it seems definitely to be uh, the socioeconomic conditions. If when they look at occupa- occupation was very important, yeah. but occupation in that they a lot of women preferred men who worked in security institutions so like the ministry of state security or the ministry Uh, of people security um or who worked who had higher positions in the military not because of the status that it gave mm -hmm. but because they knew that these uh and throughout through these occupations these men would be able to have more access to bribes and to have more access to you know the currency that flows in the informal um, economy um so that was very very common um others other other factors included you know like character or not not being a non-drinker or Mm -hmm. um you know charisma things you would find in any country really like any relationship um but i think was that the most interesting thing was that they they were very specific about what occupations they wanted their future spouses to have right now in in south korea we often hear um and you know it's off it's on television it really permeates the culture that uh wives have difficult relations with their parents-in-law particularly the mother of their husband 
Um, how how is this in North Korea? It's the same. I would say this is very just. This comes with more of the Korean tradition mm -hmm. um, across the entire peninsula, rather than being just a North Korean thing specifically. Yeah. Um, so out of our 60 participants, there were 19 cases where they, the, pair, the couple still lived with their husband's family, um, compared to very few who lived with the wife's family. And when we asked, you know, how difficult was it to adapt to your spouse's family? What difficulties did you have? Um, while above half said that, uh, above half of the women said that they had difficulty only 30% of men said that they had difficulties mm. and then it was interesting to also see the reasons for the difficulties um, that each gender had in that the women would say you know as as daughters-in-laws we're um, expected to sac make sacrifices we're questioned about how dedicated we are yeah. we have to we're silenced where whereas when we asked the men what type of uh difficulties they had they were like oh we're we have to meet with them too often. It's too mm. many encounters or there's not enough treatment. They prefer their own son rather than, you know, the son-in-law. Um, and so it was very clear that there was uh, discrimination, uh, mm. difference in the genders and how sons-in-laws are treated versus daughters-in-laws. Now let's get into the, uh, the sensitive topic of marital conflict. What are the, the main sources of, of marital conflict in North Korea? amongst your interviewees, I should say. I, I don't want to be uh, uh, too overgeneralizing, but among your interviewees. Right. And I think that's also what we wanted to get through in our report as well, where we asked our interviewees about their personal experiences, but also in um, trends that they perceived to be happening without us having to, you know, having that scientific method to go into North Korea and ask every single household there. Yeah. Um, so we also did want to make that very clear. When we, when we asked about uh, women and men's uh, personal experiences of why mar marital conflict would occur, many of the women would say, you know, it's that double burden of, I have to go out, I have to make the money, um, but I'm not recognized for the work that I do. And yeah. It's, it was interesting when we, even though women were, the majority of women were bread, breadwinners of their households, they, did, they still didn't consider that to be their main job. Mm. For them, their main job was still being a mother or a wife. And so they would come home at like 9, 10, 11, and their husbands had just, have just been waiting for them all day to come home and cook and clean. So they had that, they had to play that um they just had that double burden. They're playing two roles in their life yeah. constantly. Um, and then they feel that they're not being recognized for all that they contribute. And at the same time, men feel that their, you know, power in the household is, uh, is di diminishing. Mm. They feel that their wives don't respect them as much and that their wives are not giving them the environment to advance in society. Um, and I think so it's... It, the conflict comes where uh, men are still expected to be the head of the household and there have been no changes to recognize um, that women 
women could also be the head of the household. So both men and women are still very stuck in that old traditional role, but they can also see. But in reality, mm -hmm. the people who have the economic power are not who, are, who have the political power. Right. So it's, it's these economic changes. It's the, the women who are working um, on the informal economy while the men are going out to enforce uh, jobs that actually do very little. Uh, and, and that's a great source of friction in the households. Is that right? Right, exactly. And then, yeah, we so we also asked, so we asked them about their personal um, experiences, but then we also asked them about what they would say the main causes of marital conflict was in Hezan generally. Yeah. It was interesting to firstly note that all of, all 60 respondents said that divorce was on the rise in Hezan. And uh -huh. that was because, and both men and women attributed it to because women are wanting more equality. Mm. So either the woman is fed up of not getting the respect and the power that she feels that she deserves, or the men are fed up of women demanding that equality. Um, so that was one uh, trend that they found. Another was related to sexual, uh, you could say misconduct or sexual encounters or activity, where because as you mentioned, Jacko, many of the women are involved in market activities in the informal economy. Mm -hmm. And because some of it, you know, some of it is uh, legalized and allowed by the government, but some of it, so not all of it is. And so they are often, they'll come into contact with state officials or uh, government agencies during crackdowns and so they're expected to pay a bribe to get out of that situation uh, and some of that bribe will be in the form of a sexual favor right um and some women say it will also be done preemptively mm. and so um they need to have some state officials some people in the mss who will they know will be on their back and who will warn them in advance if there's going to be a crackdown yeah um and you know then what men perceive is men will perceive that as women having affairs not them doing what they can to just ensure that their family has can mm. sustain their livelihood uh, but they see it as a threat to their their manhood and so mm -hmm. a lot of marital uh, conflict because of that as well is um is divorce seen as a source of shame in north korea or is it simply a procedural matter it's interesting because when we asked uh, those in Hesan, um, they were saying, oh, it's become so common that it's mm -hmm. no longer shameful. But as, as you mentioned, we had, uh, we published, we reported on this briefing at our, um, on this report at our briefing a few days ago, where we invited actually a lady from Hamhung mm. to see the contrast in mm -hmm. how different regions thought of marital conflict. And she had gotten divorced from her husband while she was in North Korea. And she said it was a source of major shame, which led well, uh, was, was one of the reasons why she decided to leave North Korea, because she uh, saw no future with constantly having that label attached to her. Mm -hmm. And so it varies, I think. I think Hesan is yeah. a unique case. Um, but even in South Korea, I think divorce is still seen to be quite a taboo. And yeah. it's... I mean, it's starting to change, but not as much as you'd see in like European countries, for example. Now, I'm interested uh, in the defection stories of these uh, 60 people who were interviewed. Did you find then that there are a lot of um, divorced people 
or separated people coming by themselves who had left part, you know, partners or ex-partners behind at home because they weren't happy with them? Yeah, so we had quite a unique, it was quite diverse in our respondents where some, we, we interviewed couples who had come together mm. and we interviewed uh, those who were separated or divorced. Mostly it was uh, the women who were divorced or separated. Mm -hmm. um, and with the men, a lot of them had come with their wives. Um, either their wives had come before or they had come together. So it was, there was some diversity. And with the couples who were still together, um, did they, you know, did they talk about love? Uh, did, did they claim to to love each other? I'm, I'm thinking about this because you know this is one of the questions that uh, that Yonmi and I talked about in her interview about the the concept of of love in North Korea. Mm -hmm. It definitely changes with generation. Mm. Um, those in the even in their forties, it were you know they would blush and get they would um, be, not be able to answer our questions about. Mm love or you know, sexual relationships or dating they would get very flustered mm -hmm. but definitely those in their 30s um or those who had remarried in their later ages they were a bit more open to talk mm -hmm. about love and um you know some had there was a couple who had remarried because they'd had an affair and fell in, and they said they fell in love and came to south korea together because they couldn't stay together in north korea oh. um so I think it's a generational thing yeah. where now, especially because of all the like South Korean dramas that are going in, mm -hmm. the uh, perception that they have of love and dating and marriage is not the same as it was maybe when yeah. Yomi Park was there. Now, uh, were you part of the interview process yourself, Hannah? I did do some of the interviews. Um, I was not the main author of the report, mm -hmm. uh, but... Uh, all of our researchers uh, participate in interviews, yeah. um, regardless of the project. And are there um, perhaps some personal stories or details that really stuck with you about, for example, marital conflict or discord? It was interesting where some women didn't really see, even see it as a marriage, mm. where it was just, like having a lodger at home so oh, wow. an extra mouth to feed um uh -huh. so the husband really so, was just just a sort of a useless lump as it were right right they say um a lot of north korean women will call their husbands dogs who just like bark at home and hmm. i think frustration comes where they see the husbands as like an extra burden but the government still protects their husbands and yeah. don't force them to do anything else whereas they have so much to do um and so when we asked you know like what would you do to you know resolve the conflict uh what was your um marital life like at, at least in the beginning how did it change they would they were confused about why we wanted to do this research in the first yeah. place um because it wasn't important to them they some of them would like ask me about what I did in the markets, I can tell you, you know, how I smuggled all those goods from China and made mm. so much money. Um, I didn't have a relationship with my husband. How could I have a relationship with my husband? Mm. Because I would be working 12 hours a day. I would come home. There's no electricity. So it's dark. I can't, I don't even see his face. Yeah. And I, ha I still have to like cook and clean for them. And then we just go to sleep. Like 
we don't touch each other, right. we don't talk to each other. Um, of course, these were the women who most of them had come, you know, by themselves or right. um, were no longer married. Yeah. Did you have? Did you encounter any women who had to leave home because of violence, and and that ultimately led to their defection? Not necessarily that it led to their defection, mm -hmm. but there were some women who had experienced domestic violence mm. and ran away from their homes, um, but not to the extent that it would like drive them into China than to come to South right. Korea. Uh -huh. uh, but they did say that is one of the also another reason for why divorce is on the rise as well, because women are starting to are not um, willing to just stand by and you yeah. know be a punchbag. Yeah. And you know, like I, I don't need to I don't need my husband. I can make my own money. Um, uh, I yeah. don't and they don't necessarily worry about the taboo and the shame that comes with being divorced because it's not that they're hoping to get remarried either mm. um so they're quite happy to be independent so domestic violence is definitely a very serious problem that the north korean government is not doing enough for um that we did recognize and we heard unfortunately too many stories about while doing these interviews mm. Now, if a couple gets divorced in North Korea, or if a, if a woman felt that she could no longer li uh, live with her husband and his family and, and had to leave the house, what would normally happen to the children in that case? Who would they normally, was there a normal pattern or a trend uh, you would you know, say, well, generally the kids stick with the fathers or they would go with the mothers, or, or is it uh, really a mixture? For those who were legally divorced, which there were very, very few, Mm. Many were just separated. Ah. A lot of the times, the the children would remain with legally the father, but it would actually just be their grandparents. Yeah. Um, but in the cases that it was just a separation, which the majority were, I think a lot of the women tried to take their children with them. Ah. But it was, I I think it would be hard for me to you know come to a conclusion where. Most women, most children go yeah. to their fathers, or most children go to their their mothers. In, in cases where there were um, amongst your interviewees, where there are um, separated or divorced mothers who are coming to South Korea, uh, did they more often than not uh, were they able to bring their children with them, or did they have to leave them behind in North Korea? Unfortunately, a lot of them left their children behind. Mm, and they were very, very, very difficult. right. Yeah. Um, and so they were very, they were focused on trying to earn as much money as they could in South Korea so that they would have uh, enough to bring their children over. And also when we did these interviews, of course, but it was during the height of COVID. And so mm. they were, before they would at least be able to make phone calls to their, their children or yeah. hear about um, hear about it from their relatives or friends because Hezan is quite well connected to South Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, compared to other regions but because of COVID of course that has gotten so much more difficult right. and so talking about their children was just a very difficult and sensitive topic at the time mm. especially for those who had left them behind yeah oh, yeah I can imagine that that's awful isn't it
Well, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to read your uh, report's conclusion aloud because it, it's quite brief, but I want to encourage our listeners who find this topic interesting uh, to go to the uh, NKDB website and download it because actually uh, the report's very well written and translated into English and there's um, uh, some really great and moving uh, firsthand stories of, of the experiences of the interviewees, uh, which you know, give some insight into uh, their experiences and situations of personal turmoil and sometimes violence and struggle and, you know, of course, making difficult decisions to defect. So uh, I'd encourage everyone to go and have a look at it. And that website, of course, is en for English, .nkdb.org for the English site. Uh, you can also find NKDB on Twitter at uh, TWTNKDB. Uh, is the report up there now, Hannah, and is it available to, for download? Handout is, so the summarized version that which you mentioned, Jacko, is available yep. on our English website, and then the Korean full report is available on our Korean website. Okay. And do people need to register to be able to download the, uh, the handout? Just, um, you can sign up through Google or uh -huh. uh, Kakao if you're in Korea. It's very easy to sign up. Okay. Um, if you have any trouble, feel free to reach out to us either through Twitter or email us at, us at nkdb.org at hotmail.com and we'll be happy to send you a copy if you need one. Okay, and I'll, I'll just read this conclusion now and then I've got two uh, final questions for you. Uh, patriarchy in North Korea has been reinforced by the centrally planned economic system as the material basis for supporting the authority of the patriarch and maintaining the hierarchical subordination of women. However, as these institutional foundations collapsed due to the economic crisis of the 1990s, North Korean families began to face structural changes. Despite the actual dismantling of the centrally planned economic system after the arduous march, North Korea continues to implement its socialist labor policy, which forces men to go to work where they receive little to no pay and are punished for being unemployed. As women take responsibility for family livelihood through economic activities, there has been a change in the traditional gender roles. This, uh, the change in roles has naturally led to a change in perception and consciousness, but NKDB's research has shown that there is a difference between genders in the rate of this change. The difference in the change of perception has led to a gap between couples and difference in opinions of what the role of a husband and wife should be in a family leading to marital conflict. And that is the uh, conclusion of the report. How can people support the work of NKDB or get involved, Hannah? Well, we always welcome um, anybody who's interested in learning about North Korean human rights or who are already involved in mm -hmm. North Korean human rights uh, to either volunteer with us or intern with us. We have great internship programs for those who are in South Korea. And of course, lately because of COVID, we're also expanding them to virtual internships. Mm. We would greatly appreciate any financial donations that people can make this available through PayPal or mm -hmm. if you're in Korea, uh, we can um, include you in our CMS system. Um, also our publications are available for purchase. Um, this one is uh, available for free, but some of our publications are available to be purchased mm -hmm. and all of the uh, purchases that you make do contribute to the work that we do on documentation, on research activities to advocate for human rights 
um, efforts in North Korea, as well as direct assistance to North Koreans who have resettled in South Korea. Particularly, we do help victims of torture and victims of human trafficking. Um, some of them were involved in this research project as well, uh, but we provide psychological counseling to them for free, mm. of course we need to pay our counselors. And yeah. so any contribution would be very, very appreciated. Everything can be found on our website, which Jacko uh, mentioned before. That's right, nkdb.org. Uh, you can switch the language in the menu, or you can just go to en.nkdb.org to get the English uh, science straight away. Uh, and that's <laughs> all very meaningful and very important. You've been there at NKDB for six years now. I have. Is this uh, going to be your life's work? <laughs> um, I hope not. I hope that North Korea will no longer need me to do this work for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, I hope that, you know, we always say the mission of our organization is to no longer have an organization. Right. Um, I hope that one day I'll be able to freely go to North Korea and you know, have a beer and not worry about whether I'm being, you know, watched and mm -hmm. I can freely travel. Until then, I yeah. think I I will be continuing to work at NKDB. That's also why, as you mentioned before, I'm currently pursuing a master's in mm. international human rights law so that I can um, learn some more skills to be yeah. a better activist and contribute more to this movement um we'll see we'll see yeah. what the future holds uh but yeah i'm i'm i wouldn't say enjoy is the right word but mm -hmm. i do learn a lot from my north korean friends as i work every day and as i'm very fortunate to have grown up in the UK so that I, you know, I, the fact that having, being able to speak English is such an important skill mm. in South Korea so that I can be a bridge for the North yeah. Koreans. Um, and I think I'll continue to do that until I can. Well, that's great. Well, I, I want to thank you once again for coming on the NK News podcast today, Hannah Song. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Jacko. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you have a NK News subscription already, do take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have any feedback, questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening and listen again next time. Bye-bye.